0: What's up, everyone? And welcome to another episode of the Renewable Energy Smart Pod. I'm your host, Sean McMahon. And today, I want to start things off with an apology. An apology for the sound of my voice. You see, I came down with a mean case of the flu about 10 days ago, and I'm still trying to bounce back. My voice isn't 100%, but as they say in the business, the show must go on. Today, we're going to be doing a deep dive about a report that was recently released by the World Bank that analyzes the economics of electric vehicles for passenger travel. And with experts in agreement that the transportation sector needs to be a key target of any effort to decarbonize the global economy, I promise you, this report is a treasure trove of information. In a minute, I'll be joined by Nicolas pelletier Tiberge, the Global Director for the Transport Sector in the Infrastructure Practice Group of the World Bank. Now, when most people think of EVs these days, they think of a Tesla or a Rivian. Me, I think of a Ford F-150 Lightning. The truth is, the menu of electric vehicles is expanding rapidly. But most of those EVs zoom around roads and cities in places like the U.S., Europe, and China. This report, produced by Nicola and the rest of the team at the World Bank, focuses on the role an electric vehicle build-out can play in low- and middle-income countries. Countries where the majority of miles traveled are traveled on either two-wheel vehicles, three-wheel vehicles, or buses. I'm including a link to the report in today's show notes because I found it fascinating. You can also see the report and other related materials on the web at www.worldbank.org slash moving to zero. Nicola and I have a lot of ground to cover, but before we get started, here's a quick word from the exclusive sponsor of today's episode, EDF Renewables.
1: EDF Renewables is a market-leading independent power producer and service provider with over 35 years of expertise in developing onshore and offshore wind, solar, storage, and electric vehicle charging systems. EDF Renewables, energy your way.
0: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me today. My guest is Nicolas Peltier teberge from the World Bank. Nicolas, how are you doing today?
2: Very good. Thank you, Sean. Good to see you.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you here. We're here to talk about a report that the World Bank just issued. It's a deep dive on the economics of electric vehicles for passenger transportation. What can you tell me of that report that you and your team put out?
2: So, Sean, let me step back a bit and, uh, and tell you why this is important. Uh, we have 1 billion cars uh, in the world uh, today. According to certain prediction, we should get between 2 and 3 billion uh, cars by 2050. Uh, uh, so that's a doubling or tripling of, uh, of the stock of, uh, of vehicle in the world today. And we know that most of these additional cars are going to come from uh, developing countries and emerging economies. Uh, motorization is a natural consequence of development in fact we did some research at the world bank showing that when per capita uh, income doubles the level of motorization increases uh, by uh, 40% so the number of cars increases by 40% and that uh, ov- obviously is uh, is good because people become richer they uh, they get opportunity to move which give them access to jobs to economic opportunities uh, to social services but it has also some implications uh, from a, a climate change perspective. You know, we, we know that uh, transport emissions today uh, represent about a quarter of um, global emissions in the world today. They are the fastest s- source of, uh, of emissions. Transport related emissions uh, represent 8 gigaton of CO2. Uh, they will reach uh, 18 gigaton if the trends of motorization continues on uh, a business as usual scenario. While we should reach 2 gigaton uh, uh, by, by 2030 if we want to stay on track uh, with the 1.5 degree scenario uh, under the Paris Accord. So that's the amplitude of the problem we are facing. 8 gigaton today, 18 if we don't do anything, 2 that we must achieve uh, by 2030 if we want to stay uh, on, on track. Now, transport decarbonization is therefore a, a very important imperative. This is something that we take very seriously at the World Bank, uh, and it's actually one of our top priority today. Uh, in the countries we uh, we work with, you know, we work with um, many uh, developing and emerging nations all over the world. Uh, the way we frame uh, our transport decarbonization work is usually by using a common framework that is well known in in the transport community called the. Uh, Avoid shift and improve uh, framework. So avoid means avoiding unnecessarily uh, traveling. Uh, for example, uh, we can achieve that by densifying cities, bringing people closer to their jobs. Shift means shifting uh, to cleaner modes of transportation. Uh, this can be public transportation. This can be uh, biking, walking. You know, with COVID, uh, there was a renewed interest uh, of people in, uh, in biking it can be moving to rail transport moving to river based transport and then uh, improve uh, means improve the carbon efficiency uh, of each mode of transport and that's where electric mobility uh, uh, becomes relevant so so the question we um, we ask ourselves before launching this report is that I mean, many countries all over the world are interested in uh, electric vehicle today i mean the the growth is is uh, spectacular. Uh, you know, the electric vehicles represent nine percent of the global market today. They are expected to reach thirteen percent by the end of this year. Uh, they are on, on a track on double-digit uh, increase for some market uh, segments. But many of that is uh, currently happening uh, essentially in the in rich nations. So, uh, and the question we were asking is. Uh, is that a relevant solution for the de- developing world? And we have many countries uh, who are approaching us today uh, and asking us, look, I see all this transition happening. Uh, can you help us assess whether this is relevant uh, and how we can push this agenda and for what market segments? I mean, is it for electric cars? Is it for electric motorbikes? Is it for electric buses? Where should we start and how can we uh, do that? So that report really started from, uh, from that question, and, uh, and we tried to answer uh, all those uh, issues uh, through
0: this research. Okay, so what were the major findings from this report?
2: So l- let's talk a, b- a bit about the methodology that we use. No? So, so what we did is we selected a, a sample of, uh, of countries, uh, 20 countries, uh, that are representative uh, of the diversity of the the countries we usually work with. So it goes from um, very low-income countries, fragile uh, countries, to quite advanced emerging uh, uh, economies. Uh, And in those countries, we we looked at a a scenario where they would progressively introduce electric uh, vehicles in all market segments. So electric cars, Electric motorbikes, what we call the two and three wheelers, uh, uh, segment, which is very relevant in many developing countries, uh, and electric buses, no. Uh, and we looked at a scenario where those countries would reach 30% of all the new vehicles uh, that are injected uh, in the in the market would be electric by 2030. Then we removed all the fiscal distortions because what happens? Uh, is usually, I mean, many countries, uh, gasoline is taxed, electricity subsidized. It's not always true, and there are some variation, but uh, normally that's what's 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 happening, uh, and so that creates some distortion in the way you can evaluate the economics of uh, electric vehicle uh, uh, program. So we we removed all that, so, and then we monetized the, the benefits that you can get from uh, uh, from electric vehicles. Uh, for example. Uh, Greenhouse gas emissions. We used a price of carbon, uh, which is very reasonable. It's forty dollars per ton uh, to monetize those global uh, GHG emission benefits. We also monetized air pollution benefits because uh, that's a really important also consequence of uh, of electric uh, vehicles. Is that in many cities uh, in the developing world, uh, which are where air pollution is a serious issue, uh, there are actually four point five billion of people. Uh, that are dying in the world from air pollution uh, today uh, and so this is a big health challenge you not know, that beyond the global uh, benefits that you can get but it's it's a really a health and development challenge for many of the the countries we we work with you know? so we monetized also those benefits and then we did our uh, traditional you know Cost-benefit analysis uh, and economic evaluation of uh, of those programs. And the fi- findings are quite striking because in the twenty countries that we uh, studied, uh, in fact, in seventeen of them, uh, uh, there is a, a strong economic case for uh, the the two and three wheelers. Those electric motorbikes, you know, they are uh, motor taxis uh, that are commonly used in many countries. And in sixteen. Uh, of those twenty countries, uh, there is an economic case for electric buses. Now, individual cars is, is a different issue. Uh, they are still very uh, expensive for most people. Uh, the charging infrastructure is not developed, so the case is is not as strong. Uh, and in fact, in only a few countries, uh, individual cars would be a, a relevant solution today. But it may be in the future. But really, there is a very strong case today for these market segments for two and three wheelers and. uh and electric buses. So that's really a a very important conclusion uh, that tells us that those countries uh, are totally right when they are asking themselves, well, should we start thinking about uh, electrifying uh, our fleet and looking into into immobility?
0: Okay. Yeah. Just to reiterate that most of the findings here were, were stressed on like two and three wheelers and also electric buses. We did an episode in the past uh, with Horace Luke from Gogoro and their battery swapping technology for two and three wheelers. So our audience is pretty familiar with that now. Getting back to the policy side of it. So if you're a policymaker in one of these countries where the economics as you've laid out makes sense, um, and from a development perspective, it might lead to less inequality or I should say better equality, what kind of policies should these leaders be considering or in fact implementing to leverage the power of electric vehicles for passenger transportation?
2: So th- there are different policies, and and some are on the transport side, some are on the electricity side. And let's start perhaps with the the transport uh, the transport side. The main obstacle uh, to the dissemination uh, of uh, electric vehicles today is well known: is the very high upfront uh, price. You know there is. A Cost differential of uh, forty to sixty percent for uh, electric buses, uh, sixty to eighty percent for uh, two and three wheelers, uh, and more than ninety percent uh, for individual cars. Now, so even though uh, during uh, operation uh, you can recover some of this uh, upfront cost because the maintenance of electric vehicles is, uh, is is lower, and you save some money. Our finding is you you save over five thousand uh, dollars over the life cycle of a, of a vehicle, you still have an upfront uh, problem. So it's not a technical problem, it's a financing problem. And there are different policies that can allow to overcome uh, uh, this challenge. I mean, the first one is uh, all the leasing schemes that we can think about. Since the battery is about a third of the cost of electric vehicle, if you can uh, have a swapping uh, a system for, for batteries, using battery-as-a-service uh, uh, type of schemes. Uh, that's one, so one way to do it, and some countries are successfully embarking in that approach. Another way to do it is to separate the ownership uh, from the operation, and that's a solution that some cities uh, uh, like Santiago in Chile, like Bogota uh, in Colombia, uh, Brazil is looking it, into it as well, uh, in, in Rio de Janeiro, for example. They created um, what they call an asset management company uh, that buy and owns the, uh, the buses and then they they rent or they lease them to private operators to provide the transportation services. So that's another way uh, to build a financing scheme that can uh, be attractive to, uh, uh, to private operators.
0: Let me just jump in real quick there. Are there any cities that are doing that with the, with the personal transportation vehicles, like two wheelers and three wheelers? Cause if you look around certain cities, you see like the city bike programs and things like that, where it's a fleet of bikes and, you know, users kind of subscribe to it. Are there any cities that are doing that with the electric bikes?
2: So for two and three wheelers, what a country like India is doing, uh, which is a, f- a very innovative uh, financing solution is to work with the, the, f- the financing sectors uh, and, and the banks. Because what happens today uh, in a country like India, if you want to buy uh, an electric uh, uh, bike or motorbike, uh, the financing terms that you will get are much less favorable than for uh, a conventional uh, a bike or motorbike. So, and, uh, to give you a very concrete example i mean normally if you go to see a bank in india and uh, with a uh, the, the, the project to buy uh, an electric uh, motorbike probably you will get an interest rate of something like 21% maturity uh, so repayment period of uh, 24 months uh, while if you buy a conventional uh, the, the equivalent uh, electric uh, uh, internal combustion uh, um, uh, vehicle Uh, you will probably get financing terms of 16% and 36 months. So a big difference that reflects the risk perception that financial institutions have of this market, also because they don't know it, it's new, they don't... uh, So what India has has been doing is, well, can we design some uh, risk-sharing mechanism that can lower... That risk percep- perception for financial um, uh, institutions. So, uh, so they built what they call um, first and second loss guarantee mechanisms, and we've been working with them to try to optimize uh, those solutions that will reduce that the, that risk, and then hopefully. Lower the terms and get on par with uh, a traditional uh, uh, VI So that's another way to do it. uh, That is very relevant for two and three wheelers. We are watching uh, with a lot, a lot of interest was uh, how India will uh, will implement that. Because if that works, that's a solution that can be replicated uh, in many other countries. You know, including in Africa. um, Right now, uh, in countries uh, like Rwanda you know 80% uh, of um, passenger uh, vehicle call kilometer that are done uh, in, in in this country are done with the two and three wheelers you No, know? so there is a lot of demand for that's how people move basically you know so uh, if the india solution works the next one will be uh, yeah Rwanda, uh, kenya all those african nations where two and three wheelers are so such a relevant solution that will be ready to replicate it you No, know? and finally uh, another way to address this um, upfront uh, financing challenge is again what India has been doing, but also some other countries, uh, to try to generate a- economies of scale you know, and to pull the, the demand uh, by launching larger uh, tendering. Uh, for example, uh, you know one problem is if one single city uh, wants to uh, to start an uh, electric bus uh, program, uh, at most they are going to procure uh, a few hundreds. Um, uh buses so so that's not enough to lower the cost no because just the uh the number is is so small but what a country like India has been doing is then they instead of letting uh each city uh do their own tendering, they pulled several cities and several states uh, and they were able to launch tendering processes of five thousand uh, buses they have these what they call the big challenge, you know, where they want to reach 50,000 uh, uh, buses, which would be a total game changer in the electric buses industry. And that will generate uh, enormous economies of scale. In the based on the uh, what has already been achieved in, uh, in India, but also in Chile, we observe usually a cost reduction of something like 30%, uh, sometimes up to 50%. Uh, so that's really a way to, uh, to drive costs down and uh, and address this uh, upfront uh, cost uh, problem. No? So, so that's a few ideas that are out there right now that uh, are being tested uh, by countries and are v- look very, very promising. And us at the World Bank, you know, we're trying to help those countries in, uh, on both the advisory, but also we are a bank. So we, we try also to, uh, to help on the financing s- uh, side to implement those solutions.
0: So. We'll be right back.
1: EDF Renewable's purpose is to build a net-zero energy future with electricity and innovative solutions and services to help save the planet and drive well-being and economic development. We're committed to providing future generations with the means to power their lives in the most economic, environmental, and socially responsible ways possible. We understand the importance of managing energy integration in a way that also enables clean energy projects to improve the electric grid. Our tailor made solutions can solve energy challenges facing our customers, no matter the size or complexity. EDF Renewables, energy your way.
0: Yeah, it sounds like there's some very innovative ideas coming out of the finance side and, and the policy side of it in terms of transportation. What about on the energy side? It seems like if we electrify more and more vehicles, then the grid's got to keep up. So so what did your report find on that? What kind of questions did it tackle and what kind of answers did it find?
2: So on the energy side, one of the common questions that comes is, should we start now or should we wait until the grid is clean? Now, especially in those countries where, uh, and there are many of them, <laughs> where electricity is predominantly uh, produced from, uh, in a, uh, from uh, fossil fuels. Does it make sense to uh, electrify the fleet if uh, electricity is produced by coal? So, so we looked into that and, and our, our findings were uh, very consistent with uh, many other research that were done in this area. And the conclusion was that it does make sense. Uh, even in a country like Kazakhstan that we studied, uh, where most of the electricity comes from uh, fossil fuels, uh, we found a reduction in GHG emissions per passenger kilometer. And the reason for that is very simple. It relates to the uh, relative uh, energy efficiency of electric vehicles vis-à-vis internal combustion engine. And the way it works is that an electric uh, engine will convert a quantum of energy into movement uh, by 87 to 91 percent, while... An internal combustion uh, engine uh, will probably be uh, uh, below uh, uh, 20%. And in the countries where we work with, uh, where the fleet is very obsolete, uh, many old cars, used cars, uh, that efficiency is actually even, uh, even lower. You know? So, so that's what's happening. You know? So even uh, if the electricity is not clean, you gain so much from this efficiency gain of uh, transitioning into electric mobility that at the end uh, you get some, uh, some GHG, uh, uh, so that's one really important conclusion, and that's from the policy implication. There is that we shouldn't wait. No, we, we it shouldn't be sequential. No, first you clean the grid, and then you move into uh, electric vehicles. You can do that in parallel. The second um, conclusion on the uh, which is totally different on the power side is the importance of charging infrastructure. Uh, you know, the there are different type of. Uh, of way to introduce some incentives to uh, to push for uh, the adoption of electric vehicles. In mean, many countries, mostly rich nations, because it's very costly, uh, giving some uh, premiums, some uh, some grants to households who buy an electric car. I mean, in some countries, you can get $12,000 uh, if you buy an electric car. So we what we did is we compared uh, what would happen if you take the same amount of money and instead of putting it to incentivize the acquisition of vehicles, you put that in charging infrastructure, and the, the result was that the impact to accelerate the uh, acquisition of uh, electric vehicles would be six times higher. And so Wait, that's really just real
0: quick. Let me stop you there. So you're saying the $12,000 incentive places like the U.S. You know we've got new tax incentives for electric vehicles. You're saying it's actually six times you know more effective if it's rather than go in an individual person's pocket, it goes towards the charging infrastructure for the wider grid
2: that's what we found that's what we found so uh six, six times wow okay six times <laughs> more effective in in giving an incentive and and it's not that surprising in a way um i don't know if you have an electric car i do and i'm always worried about uh, will i be able to find a a charger when i travel no and so in the decision in the individual decision to transition into uh, electric uh, vehicles the availability, the density uh, of the charging infrastructure plays a, an enormous role. And what that research shows us is that it's, it's even more important than getting uh, a bonus, no, an, ins- an incentive, uh, a subsidy when you buy, uh, when you buy an electric car. No. So, so that's, uh, you know, that's, that's a conclusion that is perhaps a bit less relevant for developing countries because there are only a few of them will look into uh, individual cars, but e-buses and, uh, and two and three wheelers, the, the charging is a bit different. No, uh, you you can find ways during uh, to charge uh, during the uh, during the night uh, off peak, uh, but it is still quite important to have a look at whether the energy supply can follow. So our, our conclusion in the twenty countries that we studied is that in general. Uh, the impact on the energy demand is re- going to be relatively limited, also from the fact that remember we we looked at a scenario where it's thirty percent of new cars you know? so before the entire stock of uh, of vehicles becomes electric, it will take some time in two thousand thirty uh, that impact uh, on the energy supply is going to be uh, relatively limited. We found one percent around one percent in most of the countries we lo- we looked at. however, There are some countries, and I'm thinking about some of the poorest countries we work with, uh, countries in the Sahel, like Burkina Faso. uh, For them, it can be an issue. If you accelerate too quickly the uh, spreading of two and three wheelers, uh, at some point, you're going to hit... uh, the wall on, uh, on, on the issue of energy supply and your energy supply will not be able to, uh, to, to follow. So, so that's something to keep in mind for, for those countries. And, and basically it means that what, what can be done, you now to, uh, to in parallel increase uh, access to electricity and develop, uh, and develop a, a, a energy supply, you no? Know? Um, yeah. So, so I, I think on the energy, uh, on the end power side, I mean, these are pro- some of the, uh, some of the conclusion. Perhaps one, additional conclusion from the that work that we did was is uh, the are the fiscal implications because you remember i i mentioned that we in our study we removed all the fiscal distortions the subsidies to uh, electricity the taxes to uh, to gasoline uh, so we looked into what are the implications if you transition uh, aggressively into uh, electric mobility what are going to be the impact on your fiscal revenues no so, uh, and and the conclusion there is that as long as you are in the early phase of that transition, it's relatively limited, a couple of uh, percent at most in the countries that we studied. But at some point, it's going to be an issue. You know? So so you have to anticipate that and think about and what are the fiscal reforms that we need to do in order to keep our, our budget balance you know, and our f- fiscal standing uh, sustainable. You know?
0: Okay. And what does the interaction look like between the public and private sector? A lot of episodes we do, it kind of talks about where the governments and policymakers kind of lay the groundwork for the private sector to kind of really grow something. So where does that handoff take place? What do you see as more important? Getting rid of the upfront costs for the two wheelers and three wheels and buses or getting the grid ready? Or is there any tipping point there where the handoff goes from public to private?
2: So many of those solutions are going to come from the private sector. So it's the, uh, the role of governments is to find the right incentives. Some of them are on the regulatory side. Some of them are on the ecosystem. So, you know, this issue of the charging infrastructure is very much, uh, uh, something that the governments have to look at. And then there are the, uh, the, the what are the, the fiscal incentives that you, that, that you can introduce? No, so and that's where this issue, uh, what do you subsidize? The acquisition of vehicle? What's the, uh, of the charging infrastructure working if if for a country like india which has a a, a car manufacturing uh, industry and uh, what they did also is to to work through their industrial policy with their car manufacturing industry uh, to prepare them for that transition also Uh, so that's also another way to accompany uh, working with the financing sector uh, looking into those financing schemes that we were discussing before the leasing uh, innovations, the battery uh, uh, as a service uh, model. Uh, who are the players? How you diversify? How you increase competition? How you go to scale? Uh, all these are are things that uh, governments have to uh,
0: to think about now. Yeah, speaking of governments thinking about and, and policymakers, you know, COP twenty seven just wrapped up a couple of weeks ago in Egypt. Were you there in Egypt?
2: Yes, I was. Uh, I, I I was there, and uh, it was really uh, interesting because. During the past cops the uh, transport sector has been a bit on the on the back burner and has has not been gaining as as much attention as uh, uh and there are some reasons for that you know the the energy is front stage and uh, there are some good reasons for for that but transport is is a, a part of the problem and uh, therefore can be part of the solutions and i think that uh, you know cops uh, twenty six in glasgow was a bit of uh turning point for uh, for us uh, for those of us who work in the transportation sector. Uh, because the, the it put back uh, transport on the uh, on on the radar you know? under the UK leadership there was this uh, zero emission uh, vehicle uh, transition council that was created uh, for us you know we launched uh, an initiative uh, and the creation of a new financing uh, instrument called the global facility to decarbonize transport uh, which uh, and we received significant contributions at COP26 from the UK from the Netherlands from Luxembourg from Germany uh, and we are using these funds now to help those developing uh, countries and emerging economies who want to engage on on an e-mobility strategy this fund is already active. We are supporting, uh, all the, this work that I was mentioning in India is, is, uh, is partially financed, uh, from this uh, new facility. Uh, we are helping a country like Ghana, for example, to look into the, uh, uh, economics of, uh, of introducing electric buses in their public transportation system. We have a portfolio of about 44 uh, activities today, you know, in, uh, to push the immobility agenda in the, w- with the countries we, we, we work with. So what is interesting is that, I think Glasgow started really uh, a momentum that continued in uh, at COP27 uh, in uh, Sharm El uh, there was a lot of discussion on uh, on immobility not only uh, and, um, beyond that on on transport uh, decarbonization uh, the UK for example launched a new initiative following their zero emission the uh, council uh, program that they call uh, the uh, rapid response mechanism, and the idea is uh, to put a system that is a bit of a one-stop shop no, where you can, uh, for countries uh, who are interested in embarking on an e-mobility program, uh, to help them identify and get access to the multiple resources that are out there to uh, to help them. No, we are part of that mechanism. Uh, India was the first country uh, in Sharmalchik to sign uh, an agreement to get support from this uh, rapid response mechanism. And I think that looks very promising. No, uh, and now I, I think that uh, future Cops. Uh, we are already starting conversation for COP 28 with the uh, uh, UAE, and I, I, I'm, I'm confident that this is going to remain high on the agenda in the in the future.
0: Okay, so just stepping back for a second. So looking at all the information gleaned from this report put out by the World Bank, and you know, information from your conversations at COP 26, it sounds like in Glasgow and COP 27 in Egypt. One of the things I like to ask guests to do here on this show is give me their bold predictions. So, if you wanted to take a shot at what the role electric vehicles would play uh, in passenger transportation in say five years, you know what does that look like around the world?
2: So, I think we are going to see uh, a diversification of the market. Many new players are um, are entering uh, all the segments. Uh, you know, cars, batteries, uh, two and three wheelers, uh, buses. Uh, This is going to lower costs down. We are going to see uh, a very rapid uh, spreading of two- and three-wheelers in the developing world. Uh, We're going to see uh, e-buses almost systematically uh, looked as a possibility each time there is a public transportation program. Uh, Individual cars will take more time. uh, And I think uh, there will be more conversation between transport and energy on the issue of uh, charging infrastructure. And, you know, transport and the the energy sector, sometimes these are different ministries. Sometimes they don't talk one to another. But now there is an alliance that is being to be uh, forged on this. And I think it's going to continue and it's going to lead to very promising results.
0: Well, hey, Nicola, I really appreciate your insights. This is a wonderful report from you and your team. I'll make sure we, we include a link to it in the show notes. And I've enjoyed our conversation today. So thank you very much.
2: Thank you very much, Sean. I enjoyed it.
0: Well, that's our show for today. But before we get out of here, I want to say one final thank you to the exclusive sponsor of today's episode, EDF Renewables. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And be sure to follow us on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at RenewablesPod. And if you'd like a daily dose of renewable news delivered to your inbox, head to smartbrief.com and sign up for the Renewable Energy Smart Brief. The Renewable Energy Smart Pod is a production of Smart Brief, a future company.